Welcome to this Ukraine trope-busting bonus episode of Intrigue Explained, the second part of my interview with James of Spaghetti Cossack Media. James is an American fighting for Ukraine as part of the AFU, and on Twitter under his hand Spaghetti Cossack. If you want to support him, be sure to check out his YouTube channel. You can find the link in the episode description, or just by searching for Spaghetti Cossack on YouTube. So, as promised, James of Spaghetti Cossack Media is here to debunk one infuriating Ukraine take after another. I am going to throw these at him one by one. And James, if you can just say whatever's at the top of your mind, rant away. I will chime in, whereas something has been a bugbear for me as well. So this may take a while, but... I believe this is worth fighting the good fight for. Oh, this is something we can make an entire episode about. And <laughs> I'm going to talk about it in this upcoming video I have for my YouTube channel. And probably the longest section in there, uh, this claim that NATO provoked the war by poking the bear, antagonizing Russia. This is fascinating to me and a credit to the Russian propaganda ecosystem that this is, this is such an idiotic argument. <laughs> um it's what you know like but it sounds smart to stupid people it, it is so bandied about you probably see all of there's a lot of trolls mainly pushing this but you'll see all over twitter and youtube uh they push this lecture uh youtube lecture uh with john mearsheim international relations mm -hmm. ex-king of real mearsheimer's lecture and i mean this is just one of many examples stephen f uh, the, the the late uh stephen cohen promote this idea Many so-called peace activists and uh, basically Russia shills everywhere will say this line about NATO provoke Russia. NATO and people just go along with this, and it's off. It's often accompanied with this ridiculous uh, idea that like, what if, what if Mexico were going to join a hostile military alliance like the uh, you know like Russia's um, pact? And, and that that argument itself is just absolutely ridiculous. But Here's the thing. First of all, what is NATO? NATO is a defensive military alliance. Okay, no NATO country had made any kind of territorial claim on Russia. They had agreements where they openly affirmed that they are not adversaries. They had all kinds of cooperation between Russia and NATO military observers. I'm talking. And by the way, this some of this is post 2014 as well. Uh, a lot of these exercises and you know observations and stuff like this, it didn't necessarily cut off in 2014. Uh, tried to occupy Crimea and start a mm -hmm. war in Donbass, uh, the, the cooperation, you know, on the NATO side really tried to salvage the cooperation. Here's So here's the thing. Countries, NATO is not like, they, they try to make it, and it's amazing that they were able to pull this off, that they're able to get people to think that NATO, it's like those maps in World War II, you know, like World War II documentaries when you see like, they show a map of Europe and there's always like, there's the Nazi swastika in Germany and then the, you know, the red or black or whatever spreads both ways in Poland, France. It's just a way to show the rapid expansion. And they've managed to portray NATO this way, as though it's, in this case, the United States just conquering territory in Europe and encroaching in Russia's so-called backyard. Why they get a backyard, I don't know. But this is utter nonsense. It is a defensive alliance that you have to be invited to join. You have to make all kinds of reforms 
meet requirements just to be invited to join. And then you have to be voted on by all the members. And we saw with what happened with Finland and Sweden recently, uh, we saw how one country can hold up that whole process. In this case, it was Turkey. Okay, because NATO votes on consensus, right? And so here's the thing. If NATO is this U.S. imperial project to surround Russia and launch Operation Barbarossa to Electric Boogaloo, why did they deny Ukraine a membership action plan back in 2010? Why did they not invite Georgia? And why, did they, why didn't they just hand out membership action plans to everybody? But instead, we had this very slow process and countries like Poland had to basically kind of twist the, you know, the U.S. arm to get into NATO. Now, the second half of the question, this is a very important question, is what happened before countries uh, started to ask about joining NATO? And of course, that starts with uh, Poland, the so-called uh, Visegrad countries, started inquiring about NATO membership by about the middle of the 90s. It actually got serious in 97. And of course, those first new members, former Warsaw Pact countries, uh, joined in 1999. So what happened before that? Because again, you have to, the country has to want to join NATO. That's how like you, they want to yep. join and then they need to be invited and they need to meet requirements to be invited. And then they have to be voted on. That is how NATO works. Basic stuff here, right? So why did they want that? Why did Poland want to be in NATO? What could have possessed them to want that? And here's the thing, and, and most Westerners don't even know about this, but from 1991, like our, our impression of what happened in 1991 is that communism fell. So Russia was free now, and now we could be friends because the only conflict between us was this communist ideology that they had supposedly uh, rejected. And now we could be free, and it didn't have to be this antagonism uh, in Europe or anything like that. Uh, in reality, Russia wanted to keep its empire, and they acted to do this. Uh, either they directly supported uh, military aggression, they created the frozen conflicts in Georgia and in Moldova. They manipulated them. They maintained, they used that to maintain presences in both those countries. But they also made threats to Ukraine. And I think I mentioned in the earlier podcast about how even before Ukraine was independent, Russia was making threats uh, towards them about Crimea and Donbass. And when Ukraine became independent in 1991, there was some controversy over what should be done with the Black Sea Fleet, which was based at Sevastopol in the Crimea. And the issue was that you know, Ukraine had mostly nationalized the Soviet troops and various organs on its territory. So basically, Soviet troops who are stationed in Ukraine had a choice of be, you know, basically becoming Ukrainian soldiers and getting citizenship, or they were allowed to return to their homes. I know some people, um, I, I met a guy who was from Azerbaijan, and he ended up a Ukrainian citizen because there was a war back home, and he didn't want to be a part of that. So he stayed in Ukraine. And so th this controversy uh, erupted over what would happen to the Black Sea Fleet because the Russians didn't want Ukraine to take all this. And as a result, there was some agitation over Crimea, and there was, uh, you know, it, uh, there were threats made and concerns about what would happen. Of course, in 1994, there was a Budapest Memorandum, and the U.S. put pressure on Ukraine to give up its nuclear weapons in exchange for security guarantee. And, uh, you know, Ukraine not only gave up these nuclear weapons, but they also gave up some very important uh, assets like strategic bombers and things like this, because they could be used to launch conventional munitions. They would be very handy right now. Yeah. 
but of course we don't have them. And so, uh, you know, th this, is, this is what was happening in the early 90s, okay, where Georgia, Moldova, threats in Ukraine. By 1994, you have the brutal war in Chechnya. Uh, Earlier, just before that, 1993, uh, you know, Yeltsin, his uh, crushing of the, the parliament, uh, was a signal that Russia is going in an aggressive direction. Of course, the West didn't give a shit about this. Uh, you know, the Clinton administration loved Yeltsin. They were handing him all this money. They were turning a blind eye to all this. It was a Russia. It was not anti-Russian. It was not, Yeltsin was not a puppet that they were using to destroy Russia. They were enabling him. They were helping him. And, you know, so there, for, from the Western point of view, especially the American point of view, everything was fine. Russia's our partner. We're working together. We're trying to help them get through this, you know, chaos and everything. But to Eastern European countries, of course, they're looking at this or take you know, the Baltic states, right? I didn't even know this until recently. Russian troops were still in some of the Baltic states like Latvia until 1994. Um, Germany had to pay Russia to take its troops out of East Germany once it unified, right? Because they said, well, you know, these soldiers, they need a place to live and they don't have apartments back in Moscow. So like Germany paid them something like nine billion dollars uh so that they could build housing for these guys i'm sure some a lot of it got stolen but so they could build housing for these guys to actually get pulled out of the country right so when you have you know like i said until 1994 you have uh russian troops in baltic countries you have them running georgia like a puppet state and can and you know maintaining a frozen conflict there you have them doing the same thing in moldova you have them making threats in ukraine about trying to partition the country which is something that they would eventually attempt to do and and almost successfully do um you know this convinced some people that maybe nato is a good idea and here's the thing if you hear any commentator talking about how this is somehow nato's fault and it's the fault of nato expansion if they don't talk about any of what i just mentioned all indisputable facts which happen you cannot deny the russian involvement in transnistria and moldova or whatever this all happened. It's well documented, right? So if they don't bring that up, you have basically two options, okay? Either they don't know about any of this stuff, so they're incompetent and shouldn't be lecturing you on what's, you know, the, the real reason for this conflict, or they know and they're just choosing to dismiss it because it doesn't support their argument or they just don't care, in which case they're actively lying to you, which means don't listen to them, okay? So there's incompetence if they don't know about this stuff, and there's basically bad faith and lying if they do take your pick but stop listening to these the thing is nato didn't attack russia nato didn't attack ukraine russia attacked ukraine it's it's really that absolutely simple. and uh, i think that history is really really valuable i think i tend to come at it from a almost theological perspective where you talk to these people and you go okay so was NATO ever going to attack Russia in practice? And most of them are, I mean, you'd have to be incredibly, incredibly on the fringes of commentary to go, yes, it was. Instead, they say, no, it wasn't. But what's key here is that Putin thought it might. And therefore, NATO poked the bear by moving close enough that the bear, aka Putin, got nervous and thus invaded. Well, what drives me nuts about that is that he gets to define what he says makes him nervous. So what you would like us to do is to trade real-world concessions, including the sovereign right of Ukraine to join any alliance it damn well pleases, in order to appease what he says 
are his concerns, which he is free to change, make up, or keep pushing further and further whenever he wants. It's not a sustainable or sane way to do policy because you are trading real things against what he says his mood is. Yeah, you're basically saying that his feelings should decide what we do, even if it decides the fate of millions of people. And anyone who makes that argument that, well, you know, you have to understand Putin's perception. First of all, I can debunk that. I can actually talk about how Putin, you know, has a very capable intelligence service. He would know about the deployments or lack thereof in Eastern Europe prior to 2015. Uh, he would know about countries not meeting their defense, spend the targets for NATO mm -hmm. year after year. You know about all of this stuff, right? I can also de I can also debunk it because in uh, it was around 2010 2011 they nearly opened a NATO logistical base on Russian soil in Ulyanovsk and Putin commented on it when he said that he considered NATO to be a relic of the Cold War but that it still serves an important purpose maintaining stability he was talking about the NATO mission in Afghanistan that's what mm -hmm. that base was supposed to be for but here's the thing you could do that but it's just as you say making real world uh, concessions for imagination, well, then I could easily respond that the Bush administration sincerely believed that Saddam posed a threat to the United States, that he had had uh, contact with Al-Qaeda operatives, that he still had a weapons of mass destruction program, or that he could easily rebuild that program, which, by the way, is something that even Russian intelligence and other foreign countries believed because uh, Saddam actually kind of stupidly had this idea that he should create that impression as a deterrent, that he could, you know, mm -hmm. that he might still have something, right? And that ended up being his downfall. But the Bush administration, uh, and also Blair, in, uh, you know, Tony Blair in the UK, uh, clearly, sincerely believed this was the case. Uh, the Bush administration had inherited a sort of policy that said if there's like a 1% chance of terrorist uh, weapons of mass destruction, we have to take that seriously. And therefore, the Iraq war is justified because it was their perception. That's what matters. If I said that to somebody, let's say, especially the peaceniks making that NATO argument and the, you know, Putin felt threatened argument, uh, they, their jaw would be on the floor. Uh, how dare you suggest that that brutal invasion yeah. was justified? Well, that's exactly what they're doing. And uh, and that's the thing like we, we can't we can't make real world policy based on the delusions of of dictators are we going to do that for north korea like where where does this stop right north korea uh the the caliphate the islamic state or something you know well you know the, the islamic state wants the middle east they want a caliphate they believe they have a right to do it and they believe they have the correct interpretation of islam so uh we're just gonna stop supporting any allies there and just let them take over it is absolute nonsense and that's the thing about this whole nato provocation thing it is such nonsense but it sounds smart to stupid people so it keeps going and i think again in the west i think sometimes we we get too academic and abstract and we start thinking no there's got to be some deeper meaning there's got to be some deeper root cause and it's the root cause we have to look at and it's like well yeah root causes are important but you also have to remember that countries and leaders have agents and uh, you know they the russia has agency it putin has agents uh they had a choice to uh, please tell me what what actual imminent threat did putin think he faced if he did not launch a full-scale invasion or, or, for example, with Maidan, they understood that Maidan was not about NATO membership. 
they could look at the same polls we could look at and see that NATO membership was, first of all, not on the table since 2010, but also that it was not a popular thing in Ukraine. They could see how the uh, after Yanukovych left, the provisional government there, the, um, you know, the acting government made a public statement saying we are not seeking NATO membership. Ukraine was officially non-bloc status at that time. They only changed that. They canceled that status. In December of 2014, that's after eight months of war. That's after, you know, it's months after Russia annexed Crimea. And then they said, okay, we're going to cancel the officially neutral policy, right? That's what actually happened. And Putin would know all this. This isn't a secret to him. So if he looked at all that and decided, oh, no, they're trying to join NATO, even though they all their actions are the opposite. Well, then Putin is delusional. And you know what? If he's that delusional, then stop telling me where we can negotiate with this guy and get any kind of, uh, you know, concession or any kind of compromise with them because he is insane. Right. I mean, he's absolutely insane. If you have all this evidence saying that this is not about NATO and NATO is not trying to attack you and he still decides that NATO is this existential threat, then he's delusional and we can't negotiate with him. It's that simple. All right. Next one. Russia's not responsible for the war because Ukraine provoked it by breaking Minsk one and two, whichever whichever one. I mean, I don't think the people talking about them have read either one, but. Yeah, they, they certainly don't. Uh, no, okay, here's the thing. When the war broke out, w- right before it became an actual war, you know, there's the uh, mm-hmm. the former FSB officer, uh, Igor Gierkin, uh, Russian citizen, basically uh, claimed credit for starting the war. He's, he's the guy who turned it into an actual war, right? It started with occupying city buildings and stuff like that. And in many Ukrainian cities, even cities that used to be seen as very Russia-leaning, uh, where the police and SBU did their job and went into those buildings and arrested those people, uh, nothing really happened, okay? Because, you know, the Russians were busing in people. That was another thing is that the Ukrainians started cracking down at the border on these buses coming from Russia, uh, usually from Rostov Oblast, Belgorod Oblast, and they were basically busing in a bunch of hooligans and rent crowds And when they cracked down on that, a lot of the protests in certain cities sort of died out. You know, what people have to remember, another thing is that in Ukraine at the time, like being pro-Russian or Russia-leaning did not necessarily mean that you want to be ruled by Russia and certainly not, it doesn't mean you want to be a part of Russia. So when it comes to what happened in Donbass, you know, these guys were occupying buildings and the Ukrainian government made a unilateral offer. Uh, It was in April. They made a unilateral offer of amnesty, lay down your weapons, leave the buildings, and, you know, we'll call it a draw, right? Obviously, they didn't want to do that. They continued to fight back with bigger and bigger weapons that they were getting from Russia uh, until it turned into a proper conventional war. You know, it's funny. Uh, people try to portray this as a civil war. Insurgent. What insurgent movement has gone from, you know, from zero to mechanized combined arms warfare in, you know, literally like a month? or something, it was like a month or two, uh, they were already starting to do this, you know, I mean, usually there's like years of sniper attacks and IEDs on the side of the road or something, right? Okay, so Minsk 2, uh, or yeah, sorry, even before Minsk 2, the first side to call a ceasefire, to call for negotiation was the Ukrainian side. They, they did a unilateral one-week ceasefire after they had retaken a lot of territory. Um, Minsk 1 was kind of their idea. Russia broke Minsk 1, and that's how we got Minsk 2. Minsk 2 was, basic, was basically because of Molotov, Ribbentrop, Merkel, 
and uh, Francois Hollande. Uh, oh, sorry, my French is not so Hollande. He, uh, you know, they, they, they when, when Russia had broken Minsk one and they were launching an offensive in the winter of early 2015, they rushed to Putin and begged him for this ceasefire. And they basically slapped together this this deal. Uh, you got to remember, no one was really supporting Ukraine at this point. Okay, the U.S. was only providing non-lethal aid. They refused to provide arms. Germany flat out refused to provide arms. Ukraine was able to start buying some ammunition from like Eastern European countries. Some of that they were buying from the Czech Republic and the ammo depot got blown up by two GRU operatives. Two Czech citizens were killed in that attack by the way. But basically Ukraine had no actual support. They, they, they had lip service. They had Western government saying like, uh, oh no, this is bad for Ukraine's territorial integrity, but that's that's all they had. And so they were under the gun and they made this agreement. And there's a lot of things in the agreement is kind of deliberately designed to basically create a frozen con so that people would say, ah, Ukraine has to do this before Russia does this. And then Russia says, oh, we're not the party to this and you need to do this first. And there's a lot of that. But here's the thing is that the, the first point on Minsk two is a full and comprehensive ceasefire everywhere. And it was supposed to go into effect. It was like, it was like 24 to 48 hours after it was and signed. And a withdrawal of heavy weaponry to like beyond the borders. That's the second point. Yeah. So full and comprehensive ceasefire and then the withdrawal of these systems to something like, uh, says like 100 kilometers from the line of contact or whatever. But anyway, here's the thing. When that ceasefire was supposed to go into effect, the Russians just completely ignored it. And because they, they were trying to take the vaults of it, and they wanted to take that because it's a rail hub. Uh, they wanted to take that before it went in effect. And so basically they just ignored it from the beginning. And over the years, the Russians would continue to ignore the ceasefire and it would sort of ebb and flow. There were like informal ceasefires that were sometimes fairly successful. Uh, there were times when things heated up there a lot, like early 2017. I was there in 2015 when Minsk too was pretty much considered already dead. I mean, it was pretty much dead on arrival, thanks to Russia. Uh, but my first trip to Donbass was in, uh, to the actual like frontline area was in Avdivka. And this place was shelled by the Russian side every night. And so you, they weren't even following the first point on the agreement. But here's another thing about that is that if you look at the civilian casualties on both sides, I'm talking conflict related. So this means people that stepped on mines or unexploded ordnance, which unfortunately is a big problem there, thanks to Russia. Um, if you look at the the statistics for that, first of all, after 2015, they dropped consider. They went for like, there was a few thousand uh, on both sides, 2014. I think it was in the hundreds in 20, uh, 2015. And because uh, most of the casualties were actually military. When you talk about that 14,000 14, casualties from that earlier war, uh, most of that was military. A lot of that was on the Ukrainian side. But once you get into recent years, like, for example, 2021, the year before the, uh, the invasion, right? So supposedly Ukraine was shelling Donbass and committing genocide. OK, how many people on both sides died in 2021? 25. That's it. You know, mm -hmm. civilians, 25. Uh, the year before, 26. The year before that, 27. It's literally going down. It's in double digits. It's under 30 people. And it was going down in 2022. And right before the invasion, the OCSC is, is very clear uh, the, that the, uh, you know, the, most of the shelling 
was coming from the Russian side. They stepped up the shelling and they were hitting stuff on the Ukrainian side. And what's interesting is that this is after the time when Zelensky had been in a big scandal earlier because they tried to, they handed down an order that would basically ban Ukrainians from firing back unless they had permission from their commander. And obviously troops under fire do not like that at all. So Zelensky was already mired in scandal just for that measure, right? So if 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 this was you know if this war was because Ukraine decided to launch an offensive to retake Donbass. Where is this? Where's the evidence for this? Where show us the units that were deployed? Show us, you know, where they were concentrating forces to do this. It just it wasn't there. In fact, one of Zelensky's first actions when he became president was to unilaterally withdraw the Ukrainian armed forces in a particular area where they had uh, occupied in the, what they call the gray zone, a lot mm-hmm. of like villages between the line of contact and everything like that. And he had them pull back in a particular area because the idea was that this would be a good gesture for, you know, the people living in that area. Cause one thing is when, when either side occupies the gray zone, there's a potential for civilians to get caught there. So he tried to do this move and he got pilloried for it in debate the merits of that or whatever but i'm sorry the idea of zelensky being this hardcore nationalist who was gearing up for this offensive to go and turn uh donbass or you know, what was occupied by russia and donbass into um you know aleppo or srebrenica it, it just wasn't there and it's a well, fantasy also that that logic kind of asks us to believe that Putin has a deep and abiding concern for Russian-speaking Ukrainians in Luhansk and Donetsk, and a motivating factor for him is protecting them. And what possible basis point could you have for thinking this man gives a damn about any of these people? You only have to look at sort of this week, when in order to in order to avoid diverting too many troops to the villages that the RDK and the Freedom of Russia Legion have taken in Belgorod, he is just shelling the hell out of his own villages. These are villages in Russia that he is just shelling into oblivion because he can't be bothered diverting any troops to get them. The idea that he was so moved by the plight of Russian-speaking Ukrainians in Luhansk and Donetsk, I'm sorry, really? This guy? Yeah, it, it's funny because what people got to understand is that uh, Vladimir Putin doesn't give a shit about Russians in Russia. Like He never has. I mean, see, this is a, another advantage of just living in Russia so long is that you start to learn that on a regular basis, there are massive disasters that you know, mass casualty events, um, usually fires, explosions. Uh, but there is, some of them are really awful. There was a uh, back in like 2018, 2019 or something. Um, actually, maybe earlier, 2017, I think. Uh, there was somewhere in Siberia, there was a shopping mall that had a fire breakout in a cinema. And unfortunately, a number of children died there. Uh, there was a case around the same time of a uh, children at a summer camp on a boat ride. And the boat somehow capsized. Several of them drowned. 
And at that time, and this is funny because it's a rare case where somebody in Putin's inner circle gets fired for something. They sent uh, the guy who was at the time Russia's ombudsman for children's rights and uh, um, Pavel Astakov was his name. And he met with the kids and there's a like poor little girl with like a towel wrapped around her. And he asked her like, so how was the sailing? Like with a smile on his face, right? Like this is this is how disconnected from reality of everyday life in Russia, and this this is all happening in Russia, right? I mean, there was a, a this is something like one thing that Putin was famous for early on that should have been a warning sign is there was the uh, the sinking of the Korsk yeah. when you know there may have been an opportunity to rescue somebody they didn't know at the time. Uh, but of course they refused. And when he was asked what happened, he famously said it sank. You know, he didn't want to meet with the the mothers. There was the situation in the Nord Ost, the, uh, the Dubrovka theater scene, where they basically rescued all the hostages and ended up killing dozens of them because they stacked them like cordwood when they were all like doped up with whatever was in this gas. It was an opioid based gas. But the thing is, it was a national secret. I mean, the recipe and the gas, right? So when the doctors are trying to treat the people who hadn't aspirated their own vomit because they've been laid on their back. They were told it's a secret. They're not going to tell you what's in the gas. So the doctors didn't know what dosage uh, they were supposed to give these people to, to help them, right? And the government, you know, never really reconciled about that. So th this is a regular thing in Russia. It just happens all the time. People die because of negligence and corruption. And, and Putin doesn't care. He doesn't, he absolutely does not give a shit. So, yeah, the idea that he cared about these Russian speakers in the Donbass. First of all, the Donbass, it's a region, but there's no like Donbass identity in Ukraine. Yeah, it, it, there's no history of a significant or popular separatist movement in there. There was one little basically AstroTurf party that was funded by Russia. It started in 2006. It was called Donetsk Republic, and it had that flag, flag that they would later use. And they were banned in like 2013 for separatism or something like that. But the thing is, at their meetings and their very rare public events, they would get maybe at most a dozen people. Many of them are yeah. pensioners. Many of them are paid. This is not a popular movement. But then suddenly, magically, at the same time a bunch of Russian citizens show up, you've got this army, this insurgent army that knows how to drive tanks and use artillery and all kinds of weaponry. And they're doing this within. And we're supposed to believe that this is some kind of organic insurgent movement. It, this is this is, you know, just absolutely ridiculous. OK, next one. And this one's a, a long bow, even for the conspiracy theorists. The idea that Russia isn't responsible for the invasion because the Kiev regime is illegitimate because the Revolution of Dignity and Euromaidan was an illegal CIA coup and or fascist uprising. Okay, this is very funny because, uh, see, Russia does this a lot where the, the, we, we call it in America Calvin Ball. Uh, I don't know how many Europeans have heard of this. So we had this uh, very famous, very beloved comic in the U.S. called Calvin and Hobbes. It's about a boy with a very overactive imagination, and he has a stuffed tiger in his imagination. The tiger is a carrot. Comic that often discussed philosophy. There was a lot of political satire in it. The, the boy was sort of precocious and opining on very uh, adult topics, the, you know, politics and everything. But sometimes they would uh, they play a game they in he invented called Calvin Ball. 
And Calvin Ball looks kind of like a kickball, like baseball. But you just, the idea is you make up the rules as you go along, right? And you try to argue why you should be allowed. And, and so Russia has this Calvin Ball rule that they actually pulled in the past as well, where they try to, will say, they will say something like, a government changed. And so we no longer, we, we don't recognize it. And therefore, like all the treaties that we had signed with that country are null and void. And they, first time I can think of when they did this was actually, in 1939 this is how they justify the invasion of poland uh right around um it's like september 15th right before they invaded when the polish government left the capital and it, poland never formally surrendered in fact uh but when they left the capital and they were actually going to continue resistance in the country the so the, the soviet claim is that poland ceased to exist because its government left the capital and therefore it had to invade to protect the rights of these minorities, uh, the Ukrainian and Belarusian minorities in particular. Um, and, and of course, th th this was all bullshit because it was all agreed upon with the Nazis ahead of time that they would do this. So they will use this defense today if you bring up Molotov, Ribbentrop and the invasion of Poland, like Russian foreign ministry accounts will make this defense today. But here's the thing. Other countries were fully occupied by uh, Germany during the war, naturally, Belgium, Netherlands. They had governments in exile, governments that fled and went usually to Britain. But the Soviet Union, once it became you know, a member of the Allies, recognized those governments. They didn't say Belgium doesn't exist because your government left Brussels. They didn't say uh you know the uh the french government exiles not in paris so therefore we don't recognize france they they as allies they were allies i mean they even ended up sort of recognizing the polish government once they were allies not that that worked out too well uh later in the war but this is what they tried to pull with maidan is they said well the government changed it was a legal coup and therefore uh you know all the treaties we signed with ukraine are null and void uh, which is interesting because here's the thing, uh, Russia never formally refused to recognize the post-Maidan government. Uh, if you look at their official policies, no matter what they would say in when you know making arguments and stuff, officially they recognize the government of Petro Poroshenko. They recognize the government of Volodymyr Zelensky. Uh, they even said their official position on Donbass was that these two territories there were part of Ukraine. That's mainly because they didn't want to pay for them. The idea was to push them back into Ukraine with special privileges so they would always have this control. So that was their official legal position. If they really, if they really sincerely believe that this coup government is invalid, then they should have cut off diplomatic relations and closed their embassy back in 2014. But they didn't because they knew it was bullshit. Here's the other thing. And I heard this argument recently, and I kicked myself for not thinking of this earlier. But if you're going to say that there was a change of power that was illegal in some way or not, you know, not normal, then that means that we could basically tear up all the treaties that, for example, that the U.S. signed with Russia. We can tear up any agreement with Russia and not recognize the government because Russia hasn't had any free and fair election. Um, we could even argue that uh, since 1993, we are bound by no treaty or obligation to Russia because of what Yeltsin did in 1993 and the parliament and everything. Therefore, everything is null and void. Russia doesn't exist and is not a real country. I mean, that part's true, but like, you know, <laughs> diplomatically, diplomatically uh, we, we should be able to say the same thing. But like I said, it's Calvin Ball rules. They're just making up the rules as they go along. Now, as for the idea that it was a coup, um, I, I tell people either you don't know what happened at Maidan or you don't know what a coup. Means. I had a guy tell me that Maidan was a classic CIA coup. And I'm like, OK, then you do not know what a CIA coup looked like. <laughs> 
Um, they, they don't work that way. Coups typically, the coups are a change of power that are, is sudden. It is uh, carried out by members of the elite, uh, typically the military. And, and it is, you know, it's not a popular uprising because you can't control popular uprising. That's the, the issue is that, and that's the thing about Maidan, like you could say, oh, well, there's these, these uh, right-wing thugs there. Well, yeah, but there were also like Trotskyite communists and anarchists there because it is a popular movement. It was a big tent. Like movement. you said, you can't control a popular revolution, but you also can't just create one with foreign intelligence assets the way that cia coups worked generally is they would find an existing elite cell that wanted to replace the government and they would say hey if you do this the u.s will offer you support either in the forms of weapons or in the forms of recognition legitimation kind of training what have you they you do they can't just create hundreds of thousands of people taking to the streets and being willing to stay there for months at a time. The CIA is not magic. Yeah, it, you know, it's really funny because um, there is a, a potential coup that the U.S. could have backed very easily in Iraq against Saddam Hussein in the mid-90s, and they didn't. You know, all, all the, uh, the, the there was a group of military guys, because, again, it's not, you know, it's it's not popular uprising done by the military. And there was these Iraqi officers who were looking into doing a coup. And all they wanted was like some symbol that if they took over, that they would get recognition because that would give them the legitimacy that all coups need. Right. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. basically refused to support the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. So you're going to tell me that they somehow engineered a popular revolution in Ukraine because a guy refused to sign an EU trade deal that was his own campaign promise to get elected in the first place is just insane. But when someone says it's a coup and, you know, they do the whole the, the Chomsky thing, oh, it's a classic CIA coup. Oh, OK, well, walk me through it then. Like, how'd the coup start? How'd they do the coup? And, you know, most of the time they're like, the, the, the Newland phone call, Newland phone call. It's like, no, that doesn't tell me anything. Like, first of all, the Newland phone call thing is absolute bullshit if you know anything about Ukrainian politics. But that doesn't tell me anything. Tell me how the coup started. I want to know because, you know, this is the thing I want to ask these people sometimes is like, you, you're telling me you know so much more about this than me, the guy who fucking lived there and speaks the languages and everything. So help me out. Um, you know, tell me how the coup started. So, you know, uh, Yanukovych, uh, for, first of all, you know, ask him to tell you the date that the first protest started. They usually don't know. Right. And uh, you just ask, OK, so you know, it was a fascist coup. OK, who are the fascists who started the coup? How did it start? How did the protests start? Who started it? Um, and, and they can't even tell you this. And that's the thing. If you can't say uh, I, I used to say a similar thing about Syria, um, you know, when they talk about how oh, it's a dirty war where the U.S. is supporting terrorists to overthrow Assad. Oh, OK. So let's go back to the first event of that uprising, the protest. And I want you to explain to me how the CIA made that happen. So you do remember how the Syrian revolution started, right? Like you remember what city it started in and what event prompted this, right? And that's basically when, you know, if, if you can see them in person, that's when the oh shit stare, uh, you know, comes across their face when they realize that they don't know anything about that, right? And so when it comes to this as a CIA coup, okay, tell me how it was a coup. Tell, like, let's go to the chronology of Maidan from the first protest to the time Yanukovych left and just tell me how did it start? Who started it? Name the person, right? And, and I guarantee you, I know the two names of the people who basically called for Maidan 
right? And I guarantee you, most of the people who say this do not know either, but they know about the Newland phone call. If, if all it took to create a popular uprising and revolution in a country of tens of millions of people was a comparatively low-ranked U.S. ambassador handing out cookies, having a discussion phone call with a couple of opposition figures, and then John McCain flying in to give a speech, the U.S. would have rebuilt the global order quite a long time ago. Yeah, this is a this is a common thing about conspiracy theories where the conspirators are always super geniuses who get away with it, but they're also super morons, right? And mm -hmm. I think one of the best ways you can debunk any conspiracy theory is to make the person step into the shoes of the conspirators and explain how the planning went, explain how it went. Because it's exactly <laughs> as you said. If the U.S. can just have these successful color revolutions. Okay, so they successfully had a color revolution in Ukraine and overthrew this pro-Russian government, right? Uh, okay, why'd they fail in Syria? Why why'd it fail, you know, in, in, to overthrow Assad? Why does it fail in Iran? There's been multiple waves of protests in Iran over the years, and they haven't really managed to dislodge, you know, the government of the mullahs and everything. Why does it fail there when the U.S. can just easily, with, like you said, a rather low-ranking ambassador, just engineer popular uprisings? Why, uh, Venezuela, again, like, why, why is it... Uh, you know, I mean, things really kind of got to a head in, uh, I want to say it was 2019 or something with uh, Guaido and everything and uh, failed. So this is the thing we're constantly told, is, is, like the thing with NATO, you know, we're, we're told that NATO is this aggressive U.S. imperial project to surround and potentially overthrow and dominate Russia. And yet, for some reason, countries have to, first of all, want to join NATO and then make reforms to meet requirements. And then they have to be voted on by every NATO member unanimous um, to the point. I mean, like I said, look what happened with uh, Turkey when, they, when it came to uh, Finnish and Swedish accession to NATO. Why is it like that? Why don't the evil New World Order conspirators just say we are going to hand out uh, membership action plans to every country in the world? We'll make Uzbekistan uh, you know, a NATO member. Um, we'll just hand it out. We'll make Kazakhstan a NATO member. You know, why? Why? Why don't they do that? You know, it, it's kind of this phrase. Um, uh, there's a running gag in a podcast I like listening to, where they make fun of these really terrible movies, and and sometimes the movies, uh, they're propaganda movies, and sometimes they write something in there that really kind of argues against what the the, the message they're trying to send. And the the joke is. It's your movie. Like you, you wrote this. You mm. you control the entire story. You could have made this look better, or you could have made this argument stronger, or you could have just left it out. But you put it in there, and it acts against you. And that's the thing with the, the this whole idea, this conspiracy against poor Russia. Um, why do they ever like the idea that like uh, oh oh they secretly shot down MH17 so that they could justify doing something to Russia, like sanctions. Okay, well, why did they do these like personal sanctions and limited sanctions? Why did they just sanction everything? Like, you know, just, just uh, do like North Korea style sanctions from 2014 what on. About, about the Obama administration's absolute relentless bending over backwards to try to find a common language with Russia suggests that they were seeking pretenses to sanction the country, that they were seeking to ferment color revolutions in its neighbors. It's just, it's just patently absurd. I don't think we should give it any more airtime just because it's so stupid and really just insulting. The thing that gets me is it's so insulting to the young and not so young people who literally face down barefoot thugs in the streets to take their country back. Like it's so demeaning to them 
who a lot of the people making this argument would claim normally to be in solidarity with like a worker that is rising up against police brutality and corruption. You'd be the first ones to say that's who we should stand with. But now you just dismiss all of their genuine desire to make a better life for themselves in their country because it's just, it fits your narrative of US bad. Yeah, well, you know, those people don't get agency and rights because I don't have universal health care in the U.S. So they, you know, uh, they have to take a back seat because I mean, that's that's basically the attitude. A lot of people, there's a lot of people who, um, you know, basically they want to talk about we need a revolution in the U.S. because their massive student loans for some degree they don't use are not being forgiven. Uh, but people in Ukraine can't get upset when police, uh, in one case, like raped and murdered a girl and got away with it, right? Because that's, you know, one thing about Maidan that people don't understand is that the trade deal was basically a catalyst. The bigger issues was just impunity, corruption, police brutality. It was the, one thing a lot of outsiders don't understand, I didn't understand this for a while, but if you when you look, when you actually study the history, what it was about was that Ukraine was basically at a point where they were looking at their last free and fair election. You know, Yanukovych, there was a lot of problems with the way he was elected and the, the things he did behind the scenes. Uh, Poisoned the guy. Power. Yeah, yeah, uh, there's that. But also, like, there's the way they changed the Constitution conveniently to hobble Yushchenko. And then once he... You know, once Yanukovych was president, uh, you know, suddenly, oh, no, the president has more power again. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's but but I mean, the fact is that, like, yes, he was elected. Right. But he was elected on a promise to get Ukraine into the EU. And that was the thing is a lot of people are willing to sort of hold their nose and vote for him because they're like, well, if it gets us into the EU, fine. Um, and, and, uh, you're not even in just into the EU cause it wasn't about EU membership it was about a trade deal, but it is basically, if it gets us closer, then fine, we'll tolerate this guy. Right. And, uh, and so what he did was he kind of broke that deal with everybody when he refused to sign any, and he refused to sign under pressure. This is another thing. None of these people realize is that in the months leading up to Russia was putting economic pressure on Ukraine. They wanted them to join the customs union. And Ukraine was, uh, you know, exporting a lot of its products to Russia. And Russia was basically doing something they do very often uh, when they had this, this passive aggressive trade war thing. And so they were doing that. And then in September 10th, Yanukovych was at a meeting with Sergei Glazev, the same Russian official who would later be coordinating this so-called separatist movement across Ukraine. September 10th, 2013, before Maidan even happens, before the he says he's not going to sign the EU agreement, right? Glazev warns, actually threatens Yanukovych saying, don't sign that because you're going to lose the east of the country. You're going to lose Donbass and Crimea. So they had a plan back then and they, they were already threatening back then. So when you talk about this, is the thing that gets me so angry when people act like the U.S. has been controlling and manipulating Ukrainian politics all this time. No, the U.S. has not been the one the main party interfering in ukrainian domestic politics it has been russia it's been russia since 1991 the biggest time the u.s interfered in ukrainian domestic politics was the budapest memorandum where they like i said they twisted their arm and pressured them into giving up their 
best defense to Russia. That is the reality. And again, like this gets back to these NATO-based arguments about Russia being provoked. Anyone who is telling you the stuff about Ukraine and not mentioning that Russian influence, that Russian dominance in Ukrainian politics for you know a couple decades, if they're not telling you about that, either they don't know and they're incompetent and you shouldn't listen to them, uh, or they do know and they just don't care and they're concealing it from you, in which case they're a liar and you shouldn't listen to them. There's not really a third way here. The West shouldn't help Ukraine because the Azov Battalion, or or if you want to just comment more broadly on, you know, every so often you see a Nazi-affiliated symbol on somebody in Ukrainian military uniform. Well, you know, it's just hard to explain to outsiders. Most of the time, like 90% of these so-called symbols you see is just this cringe Viking till Valhalla stuff that's been popular in various world militaries for a while. And we just don't always see it or pay attention to it. It's cringe, but like you actually talk to these guys and it has nothing to do with their politics. Like typically the most nationalist any of these guys get is i'm from ukraine it's my home i don't want it to be taken over by russia many people there i know who describe themselves as nationalists will flat out tell you that they don't believe in ethno-nationalism or supremacy they say you know if you live here and you try to speak the language and you appreciate the culture or at least respect it and you work and everything to make society better that is the extent of their nationalism. Then you have a certain part of it, and this has been going back a long time. There's a part of this that is understandable, but very misguided trolling because see, Russia calls everybody they don't like a Nazi. Uh, if you oppose what they want, you're a Nazi. And I'm not even kidding here. They will just refer to, uh, they, they talked about Kazakh Nazism once because Kazakhs were trying to advance the use of the language. And Russians and Kazakhstan do not like the, to Russians. It is an insult that they should ever learn the language of these people they used to colonize. Right. So they start talking about Kazakh Nazis and there's Georgian Nazis. And, um, and, and, and so the word, the, the word Nazi coming out of the mouth of a Russian is utterly meaningless because it is disconnected from um, the historical political meaning of Nazi, where you support racial supremacy and, you know, these, uh, far-right traditional ideas, uh, basically the ideas that Russia promotes all the time, right? The idea of like dominance, empire, so-called traditional values, all the, these are fascist ideas that Russia promotes. But, uh, you know, they, they will call you a Nazi if you're like a, you know, Jewish, African-American, um, LGBT rights activist, but you support Ukraine, you oppose them. You're a Nazi, right? So because they do this and because of the poor education that's a uh, you know Soviet legacy, and you'll see this in Russia itself as well with people who like don't like the government, there's this aspect of trolling where it really crosses a line where it's like, oh, you call us Nazis, okay, we'll like, you know, we'll wear a Wehrmacht helmet or something. And it's it's stupid because, you know, in terms of propaganda war, you have to think about how the wider world is viewing you. And one problem that I try to help Ukraine with is that Ukraine has had to, like many countries, they, they've been in this conflict with Russia and they tend to see it as just them versus Russia. And only in 2014, people start thinking about how you're seen in the wider world. Russia always thinks about the global audience because, to be fair, they were a world power at some point. 
and they did have to make propaganda to the whole world. So they think about optics in, in this respect. And in Ukraine, it's just kind of an inside joke. So when, you know, somebody will try to troll them, I think that famous picture that they always trot out of those guys that, it, you know, there's some dispute over whether it's authentic, but these guys had like a NATO flag, an Azov flag, and a, for some reason, a Hitler youth flag. And this was from 2014. And there's, like I said, is there's some analysis that suggests that the Nazi flag may have been shopped in there. You could debate it if you want, but it's very clear that there is some kind of element of trolling here. And that's, you know, that's not good. That's not the proper way to troll people. It's like, you know, when in the U.S. we had, you know, the anti-Iraq war movement and generally we would not go around holding pictures of Saddam Hussein uh, or, you know, saying like, mm -hmm. yeah, I love the Taliban, right? That would be stupid. But the fact is that in this part of the world, you know, that that is a method of trolling. And like I said, it's you would see it in Russia as well. I saw it for years, even before this started happening. So that's a percentage uh of it as well. So like I said, most of it is like cringe Viking fetishism. And, you know, then you have like stupid trolling. And then, yeah, you have, you know, guys who were like ex-football hooligans and unfortunately... Um, that is a reality in Eastern Europe. But, you know, one thing that really bothers me is how so many people have heard of this so-called Azov, you know, Nazi battalion, and they've never heard of the pro-Russian Rusich battalion, which are, in fact, openly Nazis. The leader is a war criminal who has openly said he is a Nazi. <laughs> okay. I mean, the thing that gets me is, listen, this is a country, a country fighting to defend its national borders, that is calling up whoever it can, you are going to get some far-right people in any military. Frankly, the if nothing else, the aesthetics are kind of uh, attractive to the right wing. And I feel like the conclusion from that is you should absolutely not let those people run the country or vote them into office, which the one time they try to stand on a ballot in Ukraine, they got absolutely annihilated and therefore they have no political power so to treat this sort of like if we can find one national guardsman with a swastika lapel pin we have somehow disproven the entire country of being worthy of support is just such an infantile way of such a gotcha way of approaching geopolitics and policy that it's exhausting Oh, it's, it's absolutely nonsense because people, it's one of these things where like, again, you, you have to just stop and really think about it for a second. Like, for example, you know, I, I generally lean to the left in the US and I wish we would have better social programs like universal health care, some kind of single payer system, just anything better than what we have right now. But here's the thing. If we have better social programs, if we have affordable housing, if we have health care, if we have, you know, free higher education, these things will benefit a very big neo-Nazi movement in the country. Like, why do you want Nazis to get free health care? Why do you want Nazis to get free higher education? These guys, they'll use the money they save to buy AR-15s and commit acts of domestic terrorism. Like, and if I said that as a response to, like, say, the Democratic Socialists of America, when they talk about Medicare for all, they would be like, are, are you insane? Like, how could you really good point. say we... We shouldn't have social benefits because they, the universal benefits will inevitably benefit people with horrible politics, right? That would be considered insane, right? Or if I, or if I said something like, it is bad that the U.S. and Britain fought the Nazis and Imperial Japan 
because many of those soldiers were racist. I mean, let, let's be honest, like the U.S. military during World War II had a lot of guys who were probably ex-Klan members in it. Maybe some of them were at the time, right? We, you have to understand, I, I think one thing is that people have to understand uh, scale, where like there is there there are no hundred percent pure good factions or bad factions. I mean sometimes there are I would say you know objectively bad factions, right? But to defeat them, to be morally superior to them, you don't have to be a hundred percent pure because the U.S. of you know the U.S. of that era was Jim Crow segregation. The British you had the British Empire, right? But they were objectively morally superior to the Nazis at the time and the Japanese. And I would say on a certain level, and I'd be very careful with this, but I would say on a certain level, in a certain limited sense, the Soviet Union was even slightly morally superior to the people that they were fighting at the time, just because the Nazis were so horrendous that it, they just had to be defeated by any cost. And of course, what really undermines the Soviet case there is that they actually fueled the Nazi war machine and made it possible, right? But again, like you can make this argument, to, you could be a Michael Tracy and say, well, the U.S., had no moral uh, uh, superiority over Nazi Germany because they were racist in its army. Objective fact, but that's it's just not the way real life works. You know, we 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 can't do anything unless you can prove that the people we would be helping are one hundred percent pure and that there are there is nothing problematic about them whatsoever. Is the kind of opinion you can afford to have from a studio in Brooklyn or from your San Francisco loft. Absolutely. And that's the thing is that these people completely ignore that rule all the time when they talk about a certain part of the world called Palestine, because like, look, I mean, Hamas is a terrorist organization like these, these groups that control these territories, PFLP, Hamas, stuff like these, they, they engage in terrorist attack. They do they do target civilians. They do promote a lot of anti-Semitism, Holocaust denial, stuff like that. And yet, God forbid, in the left, if you ever have any criticism for Hamas or you say like, OK, well, yeah, Israel needs to respect their human rights in Palestine, Gaza, or whatever, but Hamas does share some blame for what's going on. Like You're going to get thrown out a window and you will never get invited back <laughs> to speak if you if talk that way. Even if you're talking about the most justifiable criticism, like, hey, they, they're teaching Holocaust denial to children. That's bad. Can't even say that because that will be seen as justify that will be seen as Hasbara justifying reprisals on Gaza or something like that. And yet that same logic is used in uh, in, in Ukraine because and, and again, it's like, you know, when, when you are and this is the way the Ukrainian people have kind of approached this. You mentioned the political failure of the far right in Ukraine. Ukrainians are smart thinking people. They're like, yeah, if you're defending us in an existential conflict, if you are defending us from the people who want to indiscriminately kill us and force us to be a certain way then yeah we will recognize your sacrifice and heroism but that doesn't mean we need to agree with your specific politics and we're certainly not going to give you power over us and yeah and this is i'm saying all this without getting into like the history of the Azov Battalion, how it got integrated, how these extremists were largely drummed out for optics uh, over the years. Um, but that's the thing is like, you know, the people who will make that argument, if they say, oh, we still found this extremist who's still serving with Azov. Well, they're going to do that if there's one or if there were 200. So uh, it, it's just it's an absolutely ridiculous red herring. And and like I said, I and I could point out how, uh, again, on the Russian side, far right connections in Russia and outside of Russia and who they support outside of Russia 
are far more comprehensive and threatening, far more concrete as well. On to another one, and this one drives me absolutely insane. This is kind of a twofer. The idea that the West should stop arming Ukraine as a way to push Ukraine to the peace negotiating table because, and this is often used as I said as a twofer, because all wars eventually end in peace talks, so not arming Ukraine would just get us to that end point faster. Okay, well, um, what can I say to that except that's uh, exceedingly dumb uh, to make that argument. All wars end in peace talks. Well, yeah, World War II ended in peace talks. It was kind of like we sat the Nazis down and said, peace, and they were like, uh, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Uh, you know, <laughs> their cities are in ruins, you know. And and so, yeah, that the, the, well, first of all, like, what, what does it even mean to say all wars end in peace talks? Uh, okay, like, what does that tell us about what needs to happen? They'll they'll end in peace talks of some kind. You know, even if Ukraine drives all the way to Moscow, there's going to be some kind of talk. So that that's just like utterly irrelevant. But when they say we should cut off support to Ukraine to drive them to negotiating negotiating table, you know, you're supposed to drive the aggressor and the you know the conqueror, the expanding empire, the imperialists, drive them to the negotiating table, not the other way around. So what these people are basically saying is we should leave the weaker country helpless so that they have to surrender land. And when we see what happened in Izum, in Kherson, in Bucha, this is just not acceptable. And I would argue anyone who wants to say like, oh, this is for peace, because you know the people do this. I, I can't stand it because they always pretend like they care about Ukrainians more. And they say, you just want to fight the war to the last Ukrainian. You know, we just want to end the violence and, and everything. And it's like, okay, well, look, Bucha temporarily surrendered when the Russians rolled in there, right? And how did that work out? Did that stop the violence? No, it didn't. So I'd say, you know, I'd like to introduce these people to actual Ukrainians especially refugees. And I just want to say, like, t tell this person from Mariupol that you want Russia to be rewarded. Russia should get that territory. And they and now they can't go home. They can never go home because uh, if they do, they're going to end up in a filtration camp or something. And I guarantee you that if, God forbid, there was ever a situation where Russia is allowed to have that territory, any refugee who goes back there is immediately going to come under FSB suspicion and they're going to be searched. And, you know, I don't even want to think about it. Okay. So I invite these people like Medea Benjamin, you know, like the Code Pink people and everything. I keep asking them, and I know Code Pink, I think they blocked me already because uh, I keep asking them, I say, why are there no Ukrainians at your events? You say you're, you know, you say what you care about is Ukrainian lives. And so I have two questions for you. Why why are there no Ukrainians speaking at your events? Or why is it the Ukrainians are always protesting against and they're not on your side? And then I have a second question. Anytime someone talks about this and they talk about, oh, no, this is real solidarity. We care about Ukrainian lives. OK, so what are you doing to help the victims of this war? Like, surely you have no, you know, uh, you don't want to support the military or violence. I get that. Right. But surely you could be supporting refugees or maybe hosting refugees, donating humanitarian aid, stuff like that. Are you doing that? I guarantee you they're not. They're not you know, and, and so it's it, absolute bullshit. All they're saying when they say that is they want Ukraine to surrender. They want Russia to be rewarded with more land. And they want, even though they say they don't, they want the war to continue because we we know this because it already happened. We did this. We basically the the whole world in 2014, actually in 2015, if you want to talk about the Europeans, Merkel, Hollande rushed to Putin, begged him for some kind of ceasefire. They violated that ceasefire, but we got it. And for eight years, the uh, the West just pretended like you know 
wink, wink, you shouldn't be doing that. We support Ukrainian territorial integrity, but they were doing absolutely nothing to change that status quo. And they, they would have done that indefinitely. And so, you know, what, what did that get us? What did that conciliatory policy get us? It got us this big invasion. So what's going to happen is you, let's say you freeze the line where it is. Russia gets to keep the territory that it has at the moment. And Ukraine has to withdraw, you know, whatever. Maybe they make a, a buffer zone, right? Okay, well, here's what Russia says. Russia says, well, we formally claimed these oblasts, none of which we control. It's like four new oblasts that they claim to control that they don't, not entirely. And they will say, these are part of Russia. It is our soil. We have every right to defend it. They sign something that said no leader of Russia can give away Russian territory. It's illegal. Mm -hmm. So at any time, once they've reorganized their forces and they've had the time to learn from their mistakes and, and maybe build, rebuild something of their shattered army, they will say, our territory is occupied by Ukraine and we are launching a special military operation to, to retake it. And we're going to be right back in the same place. And so here's what I say to anybody talking about negotiations. First of all, say what you think they should negotiate. Don't just say just negotiate. What the fuck does that mean? right? Negotiate what? With whom? Who gets what? What do you want? And why do you think that is good? Explain it. Then explain why Putin is going to stick to this agreement when he broke all the other ones before that. Explain why your agreement is so much better that he's going to stick to it. And you need to explain what happens if he breaks. More often than not, they don't even attempt to answer either of those questions because they can't. Because the fact is they're, they're arguing in bad faith. They're just saying, let Russia win. That's Ukrainians were willing to face down Russian tanks on the outskirts of Kiev when they had basically received almost nothing from the West. In the first days of the war, you know, they had a couple of plane loads from the UK, kind of whatever could be unloaded. And they were willing to fight those tanks basically in the outs outskirts of Kiev and all across the country. This idea that if you stop sending the Ukrainians tanks and weapons, they'll stop shooting. Or the idea that the Ukrainians don't want to be fighting, but somehow the West is making them fight by shipping them weapons is a complete infantilization. And as you said, it is once again stripping the Ukrainians of all agency so that you can continue to focus rhetorically on your home ground, which is US foreign policy and accusing the US government of things. And, and like I said, I mean, this is, you could save so much time. We were talking earlier about why you shouldn't debate certain people because they don't either they don't merit it or they don't have a position that is worthy of consideration. That's something a lot of these people don't like to hear. They people people always like to think, you know, they like to say I'm entitled to my opinion and they think their opinion has value. And it's like, no, you know, you're not special. You don't have automatic value or you, your your argument doesn't necessarily merit debate. But it's important, you know, not to discuss some of this stuff. And if you want to know, like you need tricks to figure out who you should actually talk to and who you, sh you should ignore. And one way to ignore them is, like I said, start with those two questions. What do you want to negotiate? What do you think should happen? And and then the second, you know, follow-up question. But yeah, in terms of, I, I would say another thing, and I think people really need to think twice about this, and I don't want to, you know, it sounds threatening, but I'm just basically saying reality is that basically Ukraine is not going to surrender. This is an existential crisis. Ukraine has suffered genocidal action from Russia in the past. It is facing it now. And the vast majority of Ukrainians are against territorial concessions. The idea that if the high 
why Mars rockets stop flowing to Ukraine, that they're just going to stop and give up and give up that land is a fantasy. And I will tell you that if we don't fight with the F-16 and the HIMARS rocket or the Storm Shadow or the Abrams or whatever, then we will go over to the type of war that is fought with the IED, with suppressed pistol, with the car bomb, with the uh, knives, stuff like that. Uh, and that is a very messy war. And that is a war that will spill far outside of Ukraine. So, you know, you decide, do you want to see this decided conventionally on a battlefield or do you want to see this as the global full spectrum war that it is? Because I can say, no matter what the government does, plenty of Ukrainians will support that continued resistance. They will work for it. And I guarantee you, I will be helping them to the best extent that I can. So I would say keep the weapons flowing and let's help a weaker country defend against an imperialist genocidal aggressor so that they can defeat them on the battlefield because that is how you win it cleaner. Uh, listen, I was born in, in Kharkiv and yes, Ukrainian courage, but also Western weaponry is the reason that city is not getting shelled every single day the way it was when it was encircled by Russia, which could not take it because they are incapable of taking a city that size, but they are certainly capable of pulling up a whole bunch of artillery troops and shelling the city as a terror weapon. Western weapons did that. Western weapons are also the things that, guided by Ukrainian soldiers, are knocking out a huge percentage of the missiles and Iranian drones raining down on Ukrainian cities. And if you oppose weapons transfers, you support those missiles and drones getting through. And they're, they're simply, there's, no, there's no more complexity than that on that question. I think they have this idiotic idea that if we stop providing those weapons, Russia will stop firing the cruise missiles and drones. It's like, no, we, we started providing more of those air defense missiles because they were using, because they were doing these attacks and because they were shelling cities. If you stop that, they will just step up the shelling. It's not of a Pokemon battle. Ukraine can't opt out by just not owning any Pokemon. Like this is, it's, it's insane. <laughs> is that is that something you can do? I'm kind of a newcomer to Pokemon. I was uh, kind of well. I, that. I presume if you don't have your own little dragon thing, people with dragon things can't like fight you because you don't have one. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm not deep enough into the lore of the Pokemon. Yeah, hey, it's but... kind of weird. How, like I started with like 40k, and now I'm like you know getting to Pokemon. You know, so but yeah, yeah. now war will do weird things to you. I've had you for a long time. I want to throw you the last big bucket of questions, all right? And these ones are all linked. The Russian opposition and the question of whether it is Putin's war versus Russia's war. I know this is one on which you have hashtag thoughts. <laughs> yeah, hashtag pissed off. Yeah, okay, here's the thing. If you call yourself Russian opposition and you want to be taken seriously by me, you know, I don't even ask you to protest or go out and, you know, but first of all, do, do not talk about Navalny. Just forget the name Alexei Navalny because I'm just going to ignore you. Get get matches, get gasoline, burn something, break something in Russia, derail a train. There's like, Russia is such an expansive country. People just often fail to realize like how much of Russia is just remote, open steppe land. And theoretically, if you had a car and some basic tools, you could just utterly wreck lengths of a railroad just you know spend one day drive you know dislodge the railway 
drive more, you know, and they could be causing all kinds of problems for Russian logistics. I mean, there are, there are a million ways to undermine a government. And a lot of Russian oppositionists like to pretend that they're like occupied too, like Russian government has nothing to do with them. Okay, so let's go with that then. You're a partisan now against the occupation of the, uh, you know, the, the pro-Nazi Russian Liberation Army. So now you're a, uh, you know, now you are a red partisan. Sabotage them, you know, sabotage the collaborators in, in, in any way possible, right? There are so many ways Russians, especially the ones outside the country, if you're outside the country, you know, you can donate money to the Ukrainian military. Just donate it directly to the military. Get, take your money and give it to the thing that's going to kill as many of many Russian soldiers as, as possible. Because here's the thing. It's not your country. You don't have a country. In Russia, Russia has you. You don't have a country, right? So, you know, do stuff like that. Go and protest at Russian embassies about the war, not Navalny. Gather intelligence on Russian diplomats. Many Russian diplomats are actually spies anyway, so follow them. Make problems for them. Do the same with Russian state media, R, you know, RT, so-called journalists and stuff like that. Show up and, uh, you know, yell at them. Uh, show how they're lying in public. You know, this is this. If you really oppose the regime, the regime has gone all in on this war. So get out there and a partisan and uh, actually fight. You know, I'm not asking you to go and uh, become like an assassin or something like that, but there are just a myriad of ways to oppose the regime, to sabotage them, to undermine. Just the fact that you speak Russian is such an advantage because Westerners, the, the, the Russian regime has always uh, got by on this language barrier. And, you know, that's why it's so important to speak Russian because you know what they're saying to each other when they think no dumb, ignorant Westerners are listening. And so it's so important for Westerners to see what they're saying to each other. And a Russian opposition person, because of language, can do that. Um, that's it. Generally, like, like I said, I don't condemn people because of their nationality. I think we all have a responsibility to, to act morally uh, insofar as we can. You know, I see as an American, we are free people. We're not property of the government. So that's why... You know, my government tells us and tells me not to go and fight in the Ukrainian military, but it's not illegal. And therefore, I go and I do what I want because, it's you know, for me, that's the, the moral choice. And Russians can do the same thing. So stop trying to deflect responsibility. Maybe take more responsibility because many of these people like being apolitical during the, the boom in the 2000s. Um, and just find a way to undermine undermine, 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 whether it's, like I said, propaganda, translation, uh, deliberate sabotage, whatever you can do. Uh, other than that, I tend to, I prefer to talk past the Muscovite Russians. I'm more interested in ethnic minorities in Russia. There are many peoples of Russia who, I mean, take Tatars, for example, biggest non-Slavic minority and their language is disappearing. And, and not because it's banned, but because things are structured in Russia to make these languages obsolete, to make it basically something where you just use it to talk to your grandmother in the village. Uh, the similar thing they did to the Ukrainian language for mm. you know many decades in the Soviet time, um, because the Soviets were were smarter in the sense that unlike the Tsarist government, instead of just banning the use of the Ukrainian language, the press. Uh, what they did is they actually supported it at one point, but then what they did is they just structured things so that it was not as viable to use Ukrainian. It, if you wanted to get ahead, you use Russia. Um, and this is what's happening with these minority republics in Russia. And the, the worst thing that's happening now is that these republics are generally underdeveloped. Um, Tatarstan's kind of an exception. It's sort of a donor region. 
but uh, places like Boryatia, uh, poor Tuba, are Tuba especially is ridiculously underdeveloped, and they have suffered uh, extremely disproportionate casualties in this war because basically Russia leaves them with no opportunity for social mobility except the army. And then when it came to mobilization and calling people up, they disproportionately target ethnic minority. And this is all part of a process to, I mean, it, it, it kills two birds with one stone. On one hand, you don't piss off the people in Moscow and St. Petersburg who are the only Russians that really matter to the government in any capacity. And at the same time, you eliminate those pesky national minorities, especially the non-Slavic ones and the Muslim ones, and basically ensure the further Russification of those territories. And so what we're seeing is kind of a, a double genocide. And I just want to say, you know, obviously, members of these national minority groups in Russia who serve in the Russian, air quotes, military, have certainly been involved in atrocities, especially the atrocities in, Bur uh, sorry, in Bucha. So there is no excuse for those who do that, who willingly serve, who commit atrocities, or just, you know, answer the call to, uh, to mobilize and everything like that. Uh, these are people who are traitors. Tatars would call them Mankurtlar, and they deserve no sympathy, no more than any um, Russian, Slavic, Moscovite soldier or whatever. But to the ones who are not supporting the war, you know, this is my priority, the national minority, the ethnic minority. Because here's the thing is like, if Russia remains as Russia as it is now with a different government in power, I'm not entirely sure we won't be facing this same war 10, 20 years down the road. But I am fairly certain that we do not face a threat from independent Bashkortostan or independent Chuvashia or even some union of the Edo Ural states, basically. That's, you know, they're not going to come trying to restore the, uh, the Golden Horde or something like that. Uh, but Muscovites, well, we see how many times they, they keep, you know, keep at it. So uh, I, I, I want to quote this at you when recurved hornbows are raining arrows down on my, uh, my fortified village. If that happens, uh, I, I will, um, I, just to reassure you, I was a uh, big fan of the, uh, you know, the Mamluks in Egypt at Ein Jalut, <laughs> I think it was 1260. They were, that was the first uh, decisive defeat of a Mongol army that they were not able to avenge and they were kicked out of the region. And, uh, and that, by the way, happened because uh, the Mamluks were mostly uh, Central Asian Turkic steppe, knew the tactics uh, And well. now Australia has the world's largest camel population. So that should be a warning to our would-be Ural conquerors. Aside, I think, I'm not as, I guess, incensed by the Russian opposition as you often are, though I certainly find them frustrating. I basically just try not to think about them at all. Not because I'm not sort of broadly sympathetic to, to wanting to have a more liberal Russia. It's just I don't believe they will ever be in a position to affect Russian policy. And therefore, I spare them exactly as much attention as I do to anyone else with no power to affect Russian policy, which is not a lot when it comes to questions of Russian policy. I, I understand on a human level why they want more attention. I just don't feel like we should be giving it to them. And that includes spending a lot of time arguing about their comparative morality. It's just, you know, we only have so much bandwidth and so much energy, mm -hmm. and especially right now. And most of the Russian opposition just does nothing that, nothing really useful. Um, 
how does it help? You know what I mean? Like when they, they had a, a, a vigil, you know, like here in D.C., they have a Ukrainian uh, vigil at the White mm-hmm. House like every day. And then the opposition actually unfriended somebody I knew in the Russian opposition because they were posting. They were so proud of this rally they had in front of the White House uh, a little while ago. And I looked at all the signs and it was all free Navalny. And I just, you know, the people's brains shut down when you bring up Navalny. I saw this angry comment about what I said about Navalny on uh, Ukrainian Toronto television, this podcast. I said that he had the same likelihood of becoming president of Russia as Lady Gaga. And this person said, I didn't know anything about Russian politics or law. And it's like, no, actually, I do know in Russian politics, if you have a criminal conviction, you cannot run for office. So even if Putin commutes his sentence, um, you know, kind of like what he did with uh, Mikhail Korokovsky, Navalny would still have those criminal convictions, which means he can't even run for office. Now, they will say those those convictions were bullshit. Well, OK, now that means Putin also needs to somehow order a judge to have a trial and say, ah, this was all wrong. We overturn your convictions. So what I'm saying is like there's a lot of things that need to happen that Putin would have to personally do in order to get this guy to, you know, for this guy even to run for president. And the idea is so ridiculous because Putin is so paranoid he could not trust Dmitry Medvedev with a second term, right? This is a handpicked guy that was handpicked to be this like inoffensive puppet, and he wouldn't even trust Medvedev with a second term. And we're supposed to believe somehow Putin is just going to like have a stroke and say, free Navalny, overturn all his convictions, let him run an election, and it's going to be a free and fair and election. And also that all of, the, all of the powers in Moscow and St. Petersburg that have kind of grown up around Putin orbit will also just watch that happen and not do what they do it's it's just as you said it's just we have limited bandwidth and it's just it's not going to happen and therefore like i wish we didn't end up constantly getting into these debates about like oh is is navalny really a nationalist i don't care i just don't care it doesn't matter a lot of people, they'll call him like, uh, you know, they're, they're straight up calling him a Nazi and a hardcore nationalist. And the thing about Alexei Navalny is like, did he did he have connections with these groups? Yes. So did Kremlin people as well. But I know that that is not his ideology. I think his ideology is largely very centrist, generally liberal, probably socially liberal. The issue that he, with that is that he, he has the same prejudices that are prevalent in Russian society. And and so that's why he doesn't see a problem with, you know, marching with those guys. Um, that's why he doesn't see a problem with the way he characterized Georgian, Central Asians and stuff like that. And that is certainly problematic. But the fact is that, like, to go and say he's this hardcore nationalist imperialist, I think it's unnecessary because he's irrelevant. Probably going to die in prison. I'm sorry. That's just Listen, reality. He seems like a nice enough guy. Some of his views are problematic. Some of them aren't. I hope he gets out of prison. I don't think he deserves to rot in a Russian jail forever. I don't think most people in there do. I hope he gets out of prison. I don't I don't care beyond that. He has no impact on the one Russian policy I give a damn about, which is the invasion of Ukraine. Doesn't matter to it. And I think that's if that's the last time anybody speaks about that, that would make me happy. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm totally done with with that. I I just do not see it as relevant whatsoever. Let me ask you this by way of your final thoughts. Do you have any sense of where this war is going? What's your, what's your perception of what comes next? 
I think what's going to happen is, first of all, people expecting the counteroffensive to just win the war. Uh, that's unrealistic. I do believe that it will be largely successful in the sense that it will inflict a lot of casualties and losses on the Russians and put them in a more difficult situation, um, just in general. Because one problem Russia has had in this entire war is that they have these long supply lines in certain areas. And they have precarious supply lines in certain areas, especially on the Azov Sea littoral. You know, their rail lines are often within uh, within artillery range of the Ukrainians. And if Ukraine can push further, they can start targeting more of Crimea. And once they resolutely destroy the energy bridge and main bridges to Crimea, Crimea becomes basically an island. Uh, especially since we're getting more patriots and, and if they can move patriots further uh, towards the Crimea, um, you know, that could potentially menace, uh, you know, attempts to resupply by air or whatever. So Crimea can be bottled up like that. They're successful enough in that southern. What I think is going to happen, though, and this is the way I think the whole war is kind of going to be decided, is that Putin will keep trying to throw people in there, but they really can't supply them. They can't keep them fed. They're losing officers. I think Ukraine's Long range abilities, you know, with some of the systems they've been getting, like Storm Shadow, it's going to let them degrade the Russian command and control just even further. And it's going to get to a point where the Russians may have thousands of guys manning the lines, but when they have no orders, no communication, no ammo, no artillery, they can't do it. I mean, basically, in terms of offensives, like Russia has no real offensive power. They launch daily counterattacks. They sometimes make insignificant gains, but the only place they were able to make any kind of steady progress was in Bakhmut. And this was by basically concentrating so many of their forces there to the detriment of their efforts elsewhere. And then, uh, you know, even as they took the, the last street in the city, they already started to lose positions on their, on their flanks. And they could theoretically be in danger of encirclement there in the future. So they don't really have any offensive capability. Like after Bakhmut, they weren't able to like punch through and encircle Ukrainian troops or do anything to threaten that or whatever, which is something they were able to do last summer you know, with Severodonetsk and Popasna. So what you're going to see is basically them trying to hold on to land and basically you know, groups getting cut off. And eventually... Uh, you're going to start seeing these mass surrenders and it's going to start to look like the Gulf War where these raggedy ass guys are just streaming out of their positions with their hands up. And it's going to be undeniable. The propaganda, there's going to be no amount of cope to deal with the fact that an entire battalion of Russia and that's going to start unhinging whatever defensive lines they have left. I think Russia will try to lash out with more cruise missile and drone attacks. But as it gets worse, as it becomes more untenable, and they have to withdraw uh, eventually, especially once they are forced to just give up the 1991 borders. Uh, there's going to be no point in them continuing the war. Every Russian will understand we lost the force out. And especially once Crimea is actually contested, I think it's going to, uh, you know, even the Babushki, who the Babushki are all convinced that they're winning and they're going to beat Ukraine and they're going to go and go to Berlin and maybe to Washington. But once they see the Ukrainian flag going up in Simferopol or uh, you know, even better, inshallah, and in Sevastopol, this is done. You know what I mean? Because the Crimea, that was the big jewel. That was the crown jewel of Putin, you know, new empire. Because we talked earlier about how the whole propaganda was that Yeltsin was incompetent and Putin raised Russia from its knees. But it wasn't until Crimea 
that they started saying, look, look, Russia is powerful again. Russia has taken land and gotten away with it. We've taken, you know, our territory and Crimea will be Russian forever. And they just, they harped on this so long. And it was such a huge propaganda coup, uh, you know, uh, I want to say propaganda coup for him. And when that's gone, what can you say? You know, it's, it's, it's been a joke that entire, he, he, they, they pissed away people's pension for this military, for the Crimea and the occupation and this war. What are you going to say when that military is utterly in shambles? And now you're, you know, the survivors are wandering drunk on your streets. (laughs) You know, it's, it's scary. Uh, You'd almost feel sorry for him, but you know, this is what they wanted and they got it. I think that that's a fantastic place to leave it. Thank you so much, James. You've been listening to Intrigue Explained, and our guest was James Spaghetti Kozak. You can find James on YouTube and on Twitter with the handle Spaghetti Kozak.